The media landscape in America is busted. Americans are on to the omissions, the half-truths, and the outright lies being propagated against we, the people. Your host, Tom Harris, will bring you the other side of the story. Every day we are bombarded with news about the war in the Ukraine, about Russian President Vladimir Putin and Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. But how much of this is really true and how much is just propaganda to sway our way of thinking? To help us sort through the contradictory messaging, my guest today is Washington, D.C.-based Bob Kasten, Jr. After serving as a Wisconsin state senator, Bob represented Wisconsin in both the U.S. Senate and the House of Representatives, providing leadership in international matters and business concerns. Bob played a pivotal role in the development of U.S. humanitarian and military assistance programs, including foreign military sales. In 1985, President Reagan appointed Senator Kasten to the President's Export Council. Today, Bob is president of Kasten & Co., an international business consulting firm with offices in Washington, D.C. and West Bend, Wisconsin. He's also a senior associate at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. So welcome back to the show for a third time, no less, Bob. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Yeah, you're our first guest that we've had on three times. <laughs> it's great. I'm so happy to have you here today. And I, I wish Jay was with us. Jeez, you know, I'm sure our audience is missing Jay. He had that spark about him, you know, and you knew Jay as well. Is that right, Bob? Well, Tom, as, 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 you, as you know, I've, Jay was a lifelong friend. Uh, oh. we, we first met at the University of Arizona in the early 1960s. So he and I have been doing things together for many, many years. Arizona lacrosse, different things having to do with the University of Arizona, uh, different things having to do with uh, conservative ideas. And we've been friends and uh, worked together for many, many years. So uh, as much as I like you being the host today and uh, working with me with the questions, uh, I miss Jay Lair very, very much. And I know many people do. Oh, yeah. And I should alert our audience. Not only did I write an article about Jay, but Malcolm Out Loud, who is the producer of, of course, the whole America Out Loud radio station, he actually chaired a uh, tribute to Jay radio show, an audio show. And I'll put that under the podcast when it goes up on Monday, because Malcolm brought in not just myself, but various other friends of Jay. And in addition, he brought in Janet, uh, Jay's wife. So I'll put that up under the podcast and I'll share it with you as well, Bob. Thank you. Okay. Now, just launching into our questions, I'm going to ask you one of the hardest questions first, okay? <laughs> now, the Russians tell us, and we're going to be talking about the Ukraine and Russia and a bit about China today. The Russians tell us that we've broken our agreements about not expanding NATO eastward. And people might remember that Secretary of State Baker, um, he actually told Gorbachev that they wouldn't move at all eastward. And I understand the UK government hold the same thing to Yeltsin. Now, do you think the expansion of NATO eastward was a mistake? No, I don't. And I think that uh, most of the people in foreign policy circles, uh, not only in the United States, but uh, around the world, uh, believe that uh, Putin essentially has been acting uh, the way he's been acting because of his view, his vision uh, of somehow putting together this whole Russian empire. And uh, yes, I know that from time to time, a couple of 
people criticize uh, U.S. foreign policy, saying we've we've somehow put Putin feeling like he's in a box, or we've put Putin in a in a corner. And don't ever put a rat in a corner because that's when they're going to strike out. Or even worse, don't put a tiger in the corner. Yeah, um, I, I disagree with 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 all of that, and I think we have to rec- recognize just the the fundamental uh, issues having to do with with uh, with Russia, and of the view of Putin and some of those around him, although we don't know exactly who's around him as of the present day, uh, the, the the view of Putin that somehow it's his dream, his goal, his responsibility to restore the, the great imperial uh, Russia, the great imperial, you know, the great Soviet Union. And that is, I think, that uh, that is not uh, because of anything that NATO did it's because of Putin's actions. And if you remember or go back and look at history, each one of the countries that are joining NATO are joining NATO not at the direction of the United States, but are joining NATO because they're coming to ask to join NATO. It's on their own initiative. It's not the United Nations, it's not the United States initiative. It's mm-hmm. on their own is- initiative. So the Baltic states come and, and uh, invite us to invite them into NATO and NATO responds. And other states look to see what they see happening in the Soviet Union, even to this day. I mean, it's one thing to have Poland and the Baltic states and whatever part of NATO, but as you know, Sweden and Finland just recently this year have taken a look at most recent uh, actions of the Soviet of the uh, of Russia and Putin, yeah. looking at his actions in Ukraine, and they have asked to join NATO. They would like to join NATO, and then now they're going to be invited to join NATO. I think Turkey's, uh, you know, holding up Sweden a little bit, but in the end, I think both Sweden and Finland will be part of NATO uh, in this year, and mm-hmm. I think that's good. But my point is, look at the example of of Sweden and Finland right now in terms of how NATO has developed. This is not the United States or the West pushing against or putting Russia against any kind of threat. This is the the world around Russia trying to come together to prevent what is happening right this minute in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So I disagree with that whole premise. Uh, I'm not even sure exactly what uh, uh, people say Jim Baker might have said in discussions with, with, uh, with the Russians or with Gorbachev, but uh, this is Putin being aggressive, not the United States or NATO uh, being aggressive or putting him in a corner. So, in fact, it seems to me that Putin has invited NATO essentially to expand because of his threatening actions. Well, Putin's done us. In that way, uh, you can argue a great favor uh, in two or three different ways. He's been able to unite the West in ways that uh, we haven't been able to unite the West for years. Uh, mm-hmm. Not only does he have strong, con- do we have strong consensus within NATO uh, among the the uh, the members to agree with the problems that we're trying to deal with together in Ukraine. But we also have strong consensus now uh, in NATO that both Sweden and Poland 
uh, uh, excuse me, both Sweden and Finland uh, can be invited to join. The other thing that uh, that they've done is the the issue we've always had with NATO and a, a kind of a rough point between the United States and NATO has always been the so-called burden sharing argument. And uh, the argument is is that we, the United States, have been taking a, a, a larger burden of the share of European defense than we should have to be taking. And that in turn, the Europeans themselves, particularly the Germans, but the Europeans themselves, the Germans, the French, uh, the Brits have been generally better than the Germans and the French. But now, uh, because of the threat that they see and understand right at their doorstep, uh, we are seeing defense budgets being increased almost to the 2% goal that uh, was informally set by NATO <laughs> when it was formed. So yeah. in two ways, number one, Putin has united NATO. And secondly, Putin has, has helped to put pressure on the political process so that the NATO countries are now coming up with their fair share of their defense costs. Yeah. You know, Putin, of course, was an old KGB uh, agent from the from the USSR. So do you think he actually is trying to expand the Russia into to a new USSR? I don't think there's any question, but the fact that somehow Putin has has uh, made the made the decision that it's his responsibility. Uh, maybe even he believes he was meant to be the person mm. that expands uh, the the, the Soviet Union back to the empire, uh, back to the Russian empire, whatever. There's no question that uh, that's the direction that he takes both publicly and if you look at what's happened on the, on the map, mm -hmm. uh, but also more and more he's making speeches about the days when, uh, you know, when, when Moscow was the ruling power of this entire empire. I think mm -hmm. he's delusional but he's obviously delusional about an awful lot of things that he's saying and doing. Unfortunately, uh, we have to respond to his delusional goal. And, yeah. uh, and the, the, the way, if you talk about him being delusional, the way he has decided to conduct this war is also uh, delusional. I mean, it's crazy. It's wrong. And uh, I mean, there are two things that are just fundamentally wrong with the way that they are conducting this war on their side. They are sending ill-trained, uh, unequipped, uh, in certain cases without proper ammunition and, and, and rifles, basically uh, into areas where they're killed. They're just mm -hmm. slaughtering tens of thousands of Russian young men who are being forced into battle. In certain cases, they've come out of the prisons and are being forced into battle. But that's just a terrible way to be running a war. And on the other side, if you stop and think about what's happening, it's only in a few spots that Putin is actually firing at missiles and, 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 and airplanes, firing at troops and soldiers. The yeah. vast majority of the war-making capability, the missiles, the vast majority of the, of the armaments have been aimed at the cities, at innocent people, at churches, at hospitals, at schools, places in which there clearly are no troops. Nobody's fighting or shooting from there. It's miles and miles away, hundreds of miles away from the border. But yet his constant bombardment of the, of the cities, of the innocent people, 
day after day of the people of Ukraine is also absolutely crazy and uh -huh. delusional. This yeah, is not the way to run a war. And this is, it just shows the way that he is going about it, uh, makes it just even more outrageous than, than, uh, than it would be if it were just simply a, a, a military uh, operation to try to take over a neighboring country. That's bad enough, but the yeah. way they're doing it is horrible. So do you think the reason he's hitting all the civilian targets is he's trying to demoralize the whole country so that Zelensky will back down? Do you think that's why he's doing it? I think there's no question, but he thinks that by destroying the cities, destroying churches, destroying hospitals, he's going to make life so difficult for the Ukrainians that, uh, that they somehow decide they're going to give up. What's happened is exactly the opposite. Just as we were talking about uh, Putin having brought NATO together, Putin having brought the burden sharing uh, responsibilities of the NATO countries uh, more in line with the goals, Putin has also united the Ukrainian people in a way that they've never been united. And mm -hmm. uh, they, are, they are more united uh, against Putin and against Russia than ever in their history. And yeah. they are even the Russian speakers in in, 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 uh, in Ukraine are more united against Russia and against oh. the Russian regime than ever before. So uh, there's no question, but, but uh, uh, Putin is trying to demoralize the country and uh, his, his, the reaction of the country has been precisely the opposite. Yeah, yeah. I was reading early in the war that they had women preparing Molotov cocktails and actually getting directly involved People who had nothing to do with the military previously were all volunteering to help assemble munitions. Well, the the outpouring of strength and of loyalty to their country and of patriotism to Ukraine and of uh, outpouring of strength of the families is, yeah. is just extraordinary. And it's, of course, had a, uh, an influence all across the world. Uh, and then you think of the world taking care of now close to 3 million Ukrainians who are who somehow have escaped and are in places like Poland and Moldova and other parts of Europe. Uh, they are still being supported by the people, not necessarily the governments, by the mm -hmm. people of these neighboring countries. Uh, the outpouring of support uh, for Ukraine is extraordinary. And it's... Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's, it's a little piece of good news in this horrible war that Putin has decided uh, to, to, uh, deal for, to, to begin. Yeah. Well, here, even in Ottawa, Canada, where, you know, we're a long, long way from the Ukraine, I see Ukrainian flags in windows. I see them, you know, being flown from people, people's cars. I see them all over the place. You know, it's almost like they've become the new heroes, you know. I mean, if anything else has boosted their credibility hugely. Well, I think that uh, the country itself has demonstrated a tremendous, tremendous strength uh, that all of us look to res with respect and and uh, admiration. Yeah. And I think that the the role of, of Ukraine in the world uh, someday this is going to be over. I hope it's over soon, and I hope it when it's over with the defeat of the Russians. And when it's over, there's going to be a huge effort. Uh, to rebuild Ukraine, which is going to be very, very costly, very, very difficult, and 
of course, much of what's been destroyed is impossible uh, to build back. Uh, the history of Kiev and, and the, the cathedrals and the buildings and the, uh, it's just, none of the stuff will not be able to be rebuild back to where the way it was. Kiev was one of the great cities of Europe, uh, mm -hmm. but it will be built back and it'll build, be built back in a strong way. And I think we're gonna see people around the world once more uh, come to the come to the uh, to the aid of the country with mm -hmm. some kind of a of a plan, uh, maybe even like the Marshall Plan, which which restored so much of what was destroyed uh, years ago in Germany. We mm -hmm. now are going to have to be restoring uh, the country and the cities of Ukraine. And my judgment is that uh, the 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 world will still be united in terms of helping them. Yeah, for sure. Now, I wanted to talk a little bit about Putin himself. I mean, I think it's important to understand his personality. You touched on it a little bit, you know, saying that he wants to see a greater Soviet Union. I've been reading that he actually may not be well, that he may not have long to live. And that might be part of the reason he's trying to solidify some sort of legacy. Do you think that's the case? Do you think he has Alzheimer's, or not, or, but Parkinson's maybe? I don't know of his health. He certainly looks more puffy in the face than he has before, as many commentators continue to, to talk about. Um, he's evidently almost always alone. The couple of different times we've seen him on television when he's been with his military leaders or with his political leadership, uh, he's been separate from them by, uh, you know, he separates himself across the table and behind a, uh, and the other side of the room. Uh, trying to, you know, show his strength. But I, I think it's very likely that uh, that he's not healthy. He's obviously older. But uh, frankly, it doesn't make any difference anymore. I think that uh, we can't wait for him to die. We have to defeat the Russians in Ukraine. And uh, his health is not in our control, whereas support for Ukraine is in our control. Mm -hmm. So as much as I would like to see, you know, to say, Yes, I'm aware of the fact that Putin is becoming uh, sick, that possibly he has cancer, uh, possibly he has, uh, is, has dementia or Alzheimer's, and he's uh, uh, sick in the head. I don't, but we don't know any of that, and we can't, we don't have any, uh, we don't have any way of influencing that. Mm -hmm. I think probably he is, for sure, he's getting older, and uh, I think he probably is sick. I mean, plus the pressure that this man has been under for the last couple of years is extraordinary. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, the fact is that we can't depend on his health failing to the mm -hmm. point where somehow Russians decide to, le to leave uh, Ukraine. We also mm -hmm. can't count on the fact that if Putin were to uh, die or to be replaced, uh, there's no assurance that the person that taking over from Putin would reverse his policy in Ukraine. That's a possibility, and it's a, a, a real possibility, but it's not a certainty. So mm -hmm. what we have to be concerned about, not so much about Putin's health, we have to be concerned about the war and how we can go about defending and supporting Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Now, in early days in the war, there were there's huge protests against the war in Russia. Many brave Russians were standing up and getting arrested. So, I mean, is there still resistance on the part of the Russian people to the war? It's very hard to, to, uh, to know. 
uh, Russian public opinion. Obviously, it's pretty hard to take a poll there when uh, anybody answering a question from somebody asking about the government or asking about Putin or asking about the war, uh, you're obviously not sure who's going to get uh, what you, your answer. So you try to answer the way you think the government wants you to answer. Uh, but, but you can look at a couple of things that are very important. Uh, one is the people that were willing to stand up and to go to the streets and protest. And uh, that's a large group of people, especially toward the beginning. I think a number of those people have now been jailed. Certainly their leadership has been jailed, but there still are, are small protests against the war. The second important group is the, is the group is the families that are left behind when the men are dying at the rate that they're dying uh, in Ukraine. I mean, you can't have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of soldiers dying uh, and not have a huge effect on the civilian population back home uh, that have sent them to war. Mm -hmm, uh, sure. It's a larger and larger group. Uh, the, the, the wives and the mothers are more and more organized and that's developing into a more and more important group as the death tolls uh, continue to rise. And the third thing that you, I think importantly can look at is the number of people who have been able to leave Russia, particularly those people, men and women uh, of working age, uh, in many cases, some of the very best, the best and the brightest, uh, particularly in areas of technology and, and computers and information technology, the best and the brightest are leaving or are trying to leave. And they want to get out of the Soviet Union because they want to get out of Russia because uh, not only do they disagree with the war, but they disagree with the autocratic, autocratic uh, uh, government that, uh, that Putin is, is behind, and they mm -hmm. want to just get out. But they yeah. disagree with the war, and they're voting with their feet. So there are at least three areas in which we watch people becoming more and more concerned. But again, uh, that may not I mean nothing is going to change. Putin's mind except defeat. And that's what we have to be working for. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's interesting, you know, I have a, a massage therapist who's Russian Ukrainian. And she tells me there's there's a lot of Russians, of course, that that are fully integrated in, into the West. I mean, they must hate this. I mean, the average Russian must or, or are they actually supporting Putin? Because, you know, it's interesting, you see these rallies where Putin stands up in front of, you know, tens of thousands of people, and they all cheer. I mean, do you think that that's reflective of the average Russian or the average Russian pretty angry about this? Well, I think the demonstrations that we see in, in, uh, in Moscow uh, with the crowds cheering on Putin are not unlike the demonstrations that we see in Beijing uh, oh, with yeah. the demonstrators cheering on the Chinese Communist Party leadership or the demonstrations that we see in North Korea uh, cheering on the autocratic government there. I think yeah. that's just a complete, uh, all those demonstrations are fake. All those demonstrations are, 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 are uh, staged. And all those demonstrations are, dem are, are expressions that we should pay little or no attention to. Yeah. Now, what about this criminal court um, arrest warrant for Putin? Is, is this just symbolic or would you think they could actually do it? And when the war is over, do you think that it may actually be enforced? The important thing about the, 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 the arrest of, of, of Putin, or the, excuse me, he's not been arrested, he probably will never be 
uh, arrested until the war is over. And even then, it's going to be very, very difficult. Uh, but uh, anytime that there are accusations of, of war crimes, anytime that there are accusations by these international bodies, it's a huge blow. Uh, it further isolates uh, Russia. It further isolates those people that voted against the resolution. And it, 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 it for sure will limit the, the freedom of movement of, 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 of Putin. Uh, some of the conferences he was scheduled to go to later this year, he may not be able to go to because the international group may have the ability to apprehend him, or he might be worried that uh, the he could be apprehended uh, as a war criminal. It mm -hmm. might, but for sure it, it affects them. But the biggest thing is is it, is it demonstrates once more uh, the the strong support from around the world that the effort. Uh, for Ukraine has taken. Uh, yes, we've got some problems in some of the southern regions of the world. We've got some problems in South America. We've got some challenges in places like India and Pakistan. But overall, the world is united and certainly NATO is united. And uh, this international court, the war crimes and the accusations and the, and the, the uh, uh, all mean that further that Putin is further isolated and yeah. that his, his, the world is more and more willing to take a stand against his activity. Mm -hmm. Now, in the last couple of minutes before we take a break, can you talk a bit about President Zelensky? I mean, we're hearing, you know, the media and others portray him as a hero, and he certainly looks like it from my perspective, but others portray him as a villain, that he's in fact leading a corrupt government and kills his oppositions or imprisons his opposition. So, I mean, is he a hero or a villain or somewhere in the middle? <laughs> well, my guess is that uh, like you and I and most of the people that we know, he's, he's not perfect. But I strongly disagree uh, with uh, some of the minority views that have come from, in certain cases, from my party, in certain cases from conservatives and neoconservatives in the United States, but it's very narrow and it's a very minority view uh, that has been saying that uh, uh, Zelensky has become an autocrat on his own, uh, that he is, is not uh, leading in the way he should, and uh, been personally critical, critical of him. Overall, I think he's been doing just a wonderful, just an outstanding job. Uh, Ukraine, as you know, has traditionally, or at least in modern history, uh, been a very corrupt country. We've always had trouble with corruption in Ukraine under all sorts of different governments there. And uh, one of the things that uh, our government now believes Zelensky is moving ahead on uh, or moving forward on is trying to deal with the corruption. And uh, he's been dealing with the corruption. And I think that some of the some of the opposition or some of the criticism or some of the the articles that people are writing uh, from uh, Ukraine or some of the comments that people are making from Ukraine are people that disagree with him in his attack on kind of the, the corrupt system. He's been willing to fire people. He's been willing to change, to make changes. He's been willing to try to clamp down on, on some of the corrupt activities. And that also might have something to do with, with some of the, the criticism. But the criticism is very, very limited. I think he has very strong support. And uh, 
I feel that he's doing an outstanding job as a spokesman and as a leader for Ukraine. Yeah. Okay. So we'll go for a break now. My guest today is Wisconsin State Senator Bob Caston Jr. He represented Wisconsin in the U.S. Senate and the House of Representatives. So stay tuned. We'll be right back after the break. Before we return to the interview, I'd like to remind our listening audience that we rely on donations to keep our show running. We hope that you'll consider donating at icsc-climate.com. Whether you're an independent, a Democrat, or a Republican, one thing remains true. Airborne viruses love us equally. You've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the advanced nasal solution, Cofix Rx. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. Spray goodbye to colds and flus with a Cofix Rx nasal solution cleanse. That's cofixrx.com. Save 20% by using promo code out loud at cofixrx.com. We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, it's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. These days, every time you turn on the news, it seems like there's a new threat to your health. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top and shoot it down, or mix it in water. Boost your immunity. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow that said, lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime and departing, leave behind us footprints on the sands of time. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. So I'm back with Bob Caston Jr., a previous Wisconsin state senator and also in the House of Representatives. And he, as I said earlier, in 1985 was was appointed by President Ronald Reagan to the President's Export Council. So did you actually meet President Reagan, Bob? I look at myself as a as a good friend of, of, of President Reagan, and uh, he's one of the most uh, inspiring people I've had the opportunity to 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 be around. Uh, we were both elected at the same time and wow. in uh, the fall of 1980. So we both took office in the, the uh, in January of uh, 1981. 
And at that time, I, being a freshman senator, I came into the first Republican majority in the U.S. Senate for many, many years. And Howard Baker was uh, my majority leader. But uh, the president has a four-year term and the Senate, the senator has a six-year term. And I represented the state of Wisconsin, which as it is today, was a purple state then, uh, a state that could go either toward the Democrats or toward the Republicans. Uh, therefore, the state of Wisconsin was important for Ronald Reagan's reelection in 1984. Mm -hmm. So not only did we work together on legislation in, the, in 81, 82, but starting in 83 and particularly in 84, uh, Wisconsin was one of uh, uh, 10 or 15 states uh, that were targeted for President Reagan uh, to carry. He needed to carry Wisconsin in order to be a reelected re uh, president. So he campaigned in Wisconsin and being the Republican Senator from, from Wisconsin, I campaigned in Wisconsin for him and with him. So oh, wow. I had the, the wonderful <laughs> opportunity of uh, flying to Wisconsin a number of times on Air Force One. Uh, sometimes I'd meet him there on, on our, and we would go to different events uh, in certain cases that we would help organize. And uh, so I had the opportunity to uh, uh, be traveling with him on everything from Air Force One to, uh, uh, you know, to, to the back of his, his, uh, his uh, automobile uh, and uh, introduce him at uh, um, different kinds of events that he was part of for the Republican Party or for the state of Wisconsin. Uh, he was a wonderful person. And then he was reelected in 1984. Mm -hmm. And then I had to be reelected in 1986. So once again, it was a close election. Wisconsin is still a purple state. But yeah. Reagan and Halleck, Reagan and the people around him uh, appreciated all that we had done with him uh, for the 84 election. And we just kind of kept it up together. We, we enjoyed being together. And Reagan came to Wisconsin to help me in my reelection campaign, the 86 campaign, a number of times. So back <laughs> there we were again, uh, this time, uh, the, the role changed a little bit because I was the candidate and he was the supporter. Uh, yeah. But it, it, uh, it, was, it was wonderful. It was wonderful and inspiring uh, yeah. to be around him. And it was particularly inspiring to watch the way people reacted uh, to President Ronald Reagan. It was, it was an extraordinary uh, experience. Uh, and I've been with a lot of politicians in a lot of different places at a lot of different times. But uh, if you're sitting uh, behind the president on the podium, looking out at an audience of a couple hundred, maybe a couple thousand, it is just extraordinary to watch that audience respond uh, to, to Ronald Reagan. He was yeah. a fantastic and great communicator, but he also was a terrific person. Yeah, I always found him very, very likable. And, you know, I'm a Toastmaster. I like to practice public speaking. And I mean, he was always my model, you know, like the speech that he gave when the space shuttle Challenger blew up. I mean, that was an incredible speech. You know, it's something that I watch once in a while, even now, because it's such an insp inspiration, you know, to make his make their families realize they didn't die for nothing. You know, they died in, in, uh, in the pursuit of an, a very important goal, you know. So, I mean, I, as I was telling you in the break, my wife and I went out to greet President Reagan. 
when he came into Ottawa. We had a big sign, friends in freedom. And of course the media totally ignored us. <laughs> but uh, you know, that's par for the course. Yeah, he was an amazing character. Um, well, there's, now, a, there's hypocrisy in the media and uh, that hypocrisy still exists today. Yeah. But, uh, uh, and, and uh, you know, Reagan made a, a number of the challenger speech was, was only one of, of uh, a number of just inspiring, important speeches he made. And of course, uh, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall oh, was, yeah. uh, was among the most dramatic in terms of world history. Uh, but this was a person that uh, I just had a huge and have a huge high regard for. And I feel so, so blessed to have had the opportunity to get to know him and work with him. Yeah, for sure. I was happy to just be able to see him barely through the limousine window. <laughs> so yeah, you had a pretty special opportunities for sure. So can you tell us about the current Russia-China alliance? Because we're seeing in the news, you see Putin and uh, Z actually standing there shaking hands with great gusto, talking, complimenting each other and all sorts of things. Is this alliance going to present a problem, do you think, for the West? This alliance is, is very dangerous and very important and presents a very important and it presents a very significant problem for the, for the US and for the Western world. And I think that if anyone were to kind of discount it, uh, they would be making a very, very serious mistake. It's not clear yet whether uh, China will decide to actually arm the, uh, uh, the Russian army, whether they will start to send them lethal equipment or, or other kinds of equipment that can be used in war. But the, the fact is that this is a, a marriage of convenience. They don't necessarily like each other, but this is a mar marriage of convenience, which can be very, very dangerous to us. And we should pay, we are paying and need to pay very, very careful attention to it. I don't know if you remember about a year ago uh, when Jay was talking with me about this subject, I said, we've got to be very concerned about what's happening between the Russians and the Chinese. And at that point, there were just a few different kinds of meetings that they were having. And I don't know if you remember that, but uh, Jay commented, he said, I've never really thought about how important this is and how dangerous uh, this relationship can become. Of course, it's been more become stronger and it's become more important and it's become potentially uh, very, very dangerous. Mm -hmm. And uh, you take China plus Russia, and you've got a problem all right there. The, the, that's the crux of the problem. But then you take China plus Russia plus Iran, and then go China plus Russia plus Iran plus North Korea. And you've got four countries, four autocratic, difficult, anti-Western, anti-American, unethical, evil leaders. And you've got to really take an important look at, at what we need to do and what the West needs to do in order to, to, to make sure that these four countries are not able to succeed and move ahead with their dreams and goals for their countries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, and how do you think it would what would it mean in terms of our energy supply? Is this going to have some negative impacts there? Well, right now, the Chinese are, are helping the Russians 
uh, and the Russians are giving a little help to the Chinese by lowering the prices. But the uh, the key uh, customer for the Russian oil is now China, and of course it's through the oil that China, excuse me, that Russia is able to continue to have its economy at least sputter along. Uh, mm-hmm. The overall embargoes and the sanctions and all the things, I think, if anything, we've learned from this last year is that sanctions don't work very well and that embargoes don't work very well and uh, uh, different kinds of limitations and, and restraints seem to leak a lot. And uh, certainly there's an awful lot of Russian oil leaking, not only to, to China, uh, but also to India and other countries. And uh, it's that oil money that is allowing Putin uh, to stay in power. And as we were speaking earlier, uh, to remain uh, somewhat popular. If the mm-hmm. Russian economy were falling apart, it's getting worse, but it's not falling apart. If the Russian economy were to be falling apart, uh, because it would if they lost their oil revenue, then the, the situation domestically in Russia would be much different than what it is. But because mm-hmm. the Chinese are buying the oil and buying so much of it, I think that uh, uh, that the Russian economy is still able to at least hold on. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at what's happening, you know, worldwide, and uh, is, is uh, you know, the Saudis are going to continue to produce. Uh, the most important part of this mix for me, and the part that we are can do something about, uh, is that we now have a president who basically is taking a position, has taken a position against fossil fuels, against yeah. the oil industry, against pipelines, against gas, against, and we've got to, with with the situation that we're seeing in Russia, and now what we see in, in uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran, other places, uh, there's never been a more important time uh, for us to seek to be energy independent, working with countries like Canada and others. And mm-hmm. uh, under President Trump, we had a strong policy toward energy sufficiency in our country. And the Canadians were part of that. And we were exporting oil uh, to to the rest of the world from the United States. Now, that's no longer the case. And we're seeing now, uh, you know, Biden going into the strategic oil reserve and all sorts of other kinds of things. We've seen fluctuations in gas prices, et cetera. Those are all caused by this administration being uh-huh. opposed to fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. Uh, this has got to change. Now, luckily, there are a couple of senators, including Manchin from West Virginia and Murkowski from Alaska and, and a few others uh, in the, that are Democrats uh, that are slowing down the Biden effort toward fossil fuel uh, being the, the, the enemy, toward trying to eliminate fossil fuels. But uh, we don't have enough Democrats uh, that are supporting the, the energy industry. Uh, most Republicans are. But the, the Biden administration and the leadership of the Biden administration uh, is certainly become an enemy to fossil fuels. So it's a problem overseas. It's a problem in Russia and, 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 uh, and, and China, but it's also a problem right here in America as we have reduced our efforts toward energy independence and even energy exports from the United States. Well, it sounds very much like what's happening in Canada 
I mean, we've got this second incarnation of Trudeau. You know, the first one was no good for our energy supply. And now the second one's doing the same thing. I mean, Japan, for example, would love to get our natural gas, but they were forced to make deals with countries in the Middle East instead. Yep. I mean, surely this is a huge mistake. Well, both Trudeau and Biden are wrong, on, and they're also together, unfortunately, on this. And as concerned as we all are about clean air and clean water and the environment, there's got to be some balance and some understanding and some, some real. And one of the things that uh, Jay Lair was such an expert on is that uh, the the whole effort uh, by these by these leaders, by Trudeau and by Biden especially, uh, in their war against fossil fuels, is so very misguided. And mm -hmm. I think we're seeing we're seeing the uh, the difficulties with it already. But I'm particularly worried about five and ten and fifteen years out. Uh, my hope is that uh, Biden can be slowed down. I was somewhat uh, pleased with the decision that we made, that, that uh, the administration made uh, to at least begin a small amount of drilling in Alaska. Uh, that was something that uh, the environmentalists were up in the air about, but it was very important that Biden at least showed one little opportunity uh, to develop uh, a new source of fossil fuels in Alaska. Now, uh, it strikes me that it was a huge mistake for the Europeans to end up so reliant on Russia. Do you think going forward that we should take any oil and gas from Russia, that the Europeans in particular should be taking any oil and gas from Russia, or should they just try to wean off entirely? I think that the dependence on supply chains, not only on energy, but in a number of other important areas uh, that the that the Europeans had, uh, the dependence that they had on Russia uh, was clearly a problem going back to the time when Angela Merkel and others uh, were so aggressively encouraging uh, so-called working with the Russians. They're going to, when we develop their economy, uh, they're going to become um, more like us as they grow, as their economy gets better, uh, they will become more democratic. Uh, and we need the Russians and we need to work with the Russians and we need to be friends with the Russians. Uh, that was a terrible mistake. Uh, Merkel was the leader of it. I think that uh, when she was in office, she was somewhat of a, a hero to an awful lot of the European community. Uh, she's no longer that hero. And I think that uh, particularly the Germans, but other European countries recognize that the uh, Nord Stream pipeline, the other kinds of uh, relationships that they had, both physical and, and in trade, were, were very misguided. Mm -hmm. uh, frankly, we made that same mistake, not on energy, but we made that mistake with certain technology. Uh, we made that mistake with, with, with certain drugs and pharmaceutical products with China. So you can both look at look at look at both Russia with its relationship with Europe and look at China and its relationship with the United States and recognize almost the same problem. Somehow we thought if we would help them and work with them, China would become more like us. If yeah. we would help them and work with them, China would develop and become more democratic and a member, we used to say, a member of the world community in a kind of positive, hopeful way. Those were the kinds of words that were used five and particularly 10 and 15 years ago. 
that thinking has proven to be absolutely wrong. Oh, yeah. And just the same mistake that, that we were describing that the Europeans made with the pipelines and the relationships with Russia, we and the rest of the world has made with China. And we're just barely digging ourselves out of that right now, just as the Europeans are forced to dig themselves out of the, of the dependence on the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. But I hope that the world can learn a lesson uh, from that. And yeah. uh, it's very important that it was, it's, it's, it's the same kind of mistake. And it's because we want to be so positive and because we want to be so hopeful about human beings, saying that if they if they're able to develop, if they're able to succeed economically, they also will succeed in, in other ways. Mm -hmm. And the fact is that uh, it just doesn't seem to be the case with the Chinese and the Russians right now. And we've got to get those ideas out of our head. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting. I spent nine years working in the high tech sector for companies like Sun Microsystems and others. And they were, they were selling, you know, some of these companies were selling servers to the Communist Party of China. And their idea, and I wonder if it was really just driven by a sort of a justification because they were making lots of money, uh, was that China would democratize if we gave them servers. So now they're using those servers probably to spy on their people. Um, so you, you say this whole concept that if we deal with them and give them technology, that this would bring them over to our side. You're saying that was a mistake. Well, it's proven wrong. Yeah. I think that uh, I'm not, I'm not. I'm not sure that, that Henry Kissinger and uh, President Nixon and, and other people in the very beginnings of opening the doors to China were, were uh, you know, were fools or were absolutely wrong. I think the best way to think about it is that, is that we might have been naive and we were too hopeful. Mm -hmm. But more recently, uh, we've seen real problems. And there are still some uh, in Europe and some in the United States that are putting profits and trade with China or profits and trade with, with, with Russia in the case of Europe ahead of national security and of not recognizing the overriding problem that both China and Russia uh, can, can, can present. I think yeah. the, the Russian problem, frankly, is horrible in Ukraine, but it's nothing like the China problem looking out over the next five or 10 years. So mm -hmm. although we've got to be concerned about Russia, we've got to be particularly aware of and concerned about China. And yes, we did give them technology, but day by day, they're stealing technology from the United States of America and the West. Mm -hmm. uh, day by day, uh, they are, they're, they're, whether it's uh, submarine noise technology or whether it's uh, uh, technology in, in space, uh, we should be very worried about what the, uh, what the Russians and particularly the Chinese are doing, for example, in space. Uh, the, the idea that somehow these countries are gonna become more like us if they develop economically has proven to be wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, and in certain cases, very, very wrong and dangerously wrong. And we've got to recover, we've got to recognize our mistake and stop it. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, it's one of the only, one of the few issues right now that Washington is become united on, both Democrats and Republicans in the House and the Senate uh, are coming together on issues trying to limit our dependence on Chinese technology 
and Chinese drugs. And I think it's, a, it's high time that we recognize this and we move uh, against dependence upon China. Yeah, for sure. I get the impression, you know, during that time I worked for, in the high tech sector, that they were doing it for profit. And they were simply using this idea of democratizing China as a rationalization. I don't know if, I don't know if they really cared one way or the other. They were just doing it for the money. And, um, you know, I was very uncomfortable with that, to say the least. And I guess it's proven that, yeah, they were wrong. <laughs> we better stop it. <laughs> well, they were now, doing it for the money and they were also doing and they were doing it for the for the market share opportunities. And yeah. in many of the cases, particularly with our automobile companies and most specifically with General Motors, um, the idea was we, General Motors, would build a factory in China and in the process would teach China how to make cars and engines. Yeah. And uh, they would take all the different kinds of proprietary information, things that General Motors probably would keep secret from Ford and Chrysler, uh, but it be, they became they became uh, known by the China, known and used <laughs> by the Chinese, and uh, therefore the Chinese developed an automobile industry. If yeah, you look yeah. at the uh, fighter planes that the uh, the Chinese are flying, look at the commercial airlines that the Chinese are flying. Look at the cars that the Chinese are driving and making. In all cases, uh, they are very, very close to the, the same car, the same plane, uh, the same whatever of oh, the yeah. United States of America. Yeah, for sure. Like their fighters, when I see them in images, for example, when they buzz that drone, at a distance, they look a lot like an F-15. Well, know? it's because they copied the F-15. Oh, is that right? They so stole... We got they copied the F-15 and in many cases were given some of the proprietary and patented information. And in many other cases, they've successfully stole the proprietary and patented information. Yeah, that's sad. So we have one minute to go. Can you tell us just a, a little bit about your work in humanitarian aid? Well, I'm very involved in the Council on Foreign Relations and I'm involved in the American Foreign Policy Council, and I've been working in other, in other areas, uh, particularly in the Middle East. Uh, I'm fortunate to be a trustee of the uh, AUC, the uh, American College in Cairo. And uh, I've been working, I, I believe very much in, in education, Tom, and in all these different areas, I've been trying to support uh, not necessarily government education, but private sector education or private sector teaching of teachers. Uh, I think education is very, very important to, uh, to all of us, but particularly uh, in the Middle East. And uh, all of us now are also paying special attention uh, to women who traditionally in that part of the world have been held back because education has not been made available to them. Uh, with the exception of Afghanistan, which has taken a huge step back uh, with now the Taliban being in control, most of the other countries in the Gulf and in the Middle East are recognizing the, the goals of education uh, that I'm talking about. And it's, it's, been, it's been fun and it's been rewarding uh, to help uh, education, particularly education of women in that yeah. part of the world. Yeah. Well, that's really great. Unfortunately, we have to wrap up. I, I really enjoyed this discussion, especially the part about President Reagan. I mean, I'll, he was kind of like my hero, you know, like, as I said, as a 
as a person who tries to be a good public speaker, I really admired the great communicator. <laughs> and even now I like watching YouTube videos when he's speaking to the press club, you know, he had this great sense of humor, <laughs> wonderful guy. The fact that you knew him so closely, wow, that was such a wonderful gift. So thanks for being on the show, Bob. Thank you very much. Yeah, so my guest today has been Bob Caston Jr. And as I said, he was actually appointed by President Reagan to be on the President's Export Council. And we'll include more description of his background under the podcast when it goes on the web on Monday. So this is Tom Harris signing out from the other side of the story. If you've been enjoying this show, I ask that you visit the International Climate Science Coalition website at icsc-climate.com. That's icsc-climate.com. And click on the big red donate button at the top to help us continue to bring you this program every week. In the meantime, we have amazing guests coming up in the next few weeks. So stay tuned to the other side of the story.